continue our sermon series from Paul's, what we call, first letter to the church in Corinth. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking in a moment at verses 17 through 34. Covered dish not is the title of the sermon. Claustrophobic. I feel like I'm suffocating. There's only one inch of space, and that's if I sit up straight and he doesn't recline his seat back. The worst part of a faraway mission trip for me is a two-day, 10 hours each day airplane travel. The standard seat has only 31 inches of space, according to British Airways, and I have long legs. By the time I slump just a hair in my chair, after about the eighth hour in flight, the person in front of me leans back his chair, and I have to turn myself sideways so as not to eat my knees, and I realize some of you are a lot taller than I. Misery is manifold when you realize your seat is in the middle of a five-seat section. You share and you fight over the armrest, kind of posting up when someone falls asleep. The person on the left and on the right. And just as I'm long-legged, I usually sit between two people who are big-boned. And just to tell you the truth, I feel like I'm going to die if I'm in that center seat. Every minute becomes an hour. Every hour becomes a day. Oh, it is unbearable. And I think the plane will never, ever, never, ever actually land. And when it does, well, you got about three hours to board the next one and do it all over again for about eight hours. Miserable. The guy beside you starts snoring. I never can sleep. Oh, I take the little sleeping aids, but I fight them off as a matter of pride. They turn out the lights. I turn mine on, and somewhere in the night... Well, if I'm lucky enough to have an aisle seat, I'll, I'll slip that leg out in the aisle, finally a little relaxation, and then the cart runs right over the top of my foot. <laughs> a foot that is now swollen. If you've never been on an airplane that long, well, what you don't realize is when you're up that high for that long, you're, your feet swell like pinto beans in water. <laughs> if you take your shoes off, you might not be able to get them back on. Of course, what I've just described to you is coach class. That's economy class on British Airways. I was quoted a, a price this week from Dallas, Fort Worth to London, Gatwick, one way, $1,211. But don't despair. For some of you, there are other ways to fly. Unlike the 31 inches allotted in coach class where I fly. If you're in first class, you have six feet and six inches between you and the person in front of you. You have a lay-down bed. In first class, you will not be eating peanuts. No, sir, read. Not up there. You'll have individual service served by a specially trained crew. ClaimsBritishAirways.com. You'll receive discreet and yet attentive service, they say, to meet all of your needs. Everything is taken care of. And there's an extensive menu. 
The crew will prepare your meal to order whenever you want it. No waiting on the cattle call like those in coach. Menus range from a five-course gourmet meal designed by the British Airways Culinary Council to the light snack and traditional comfort food. Don't worry, up there in first class, the finest wine, champagnes, and spirits serve you anytime during the flight with all the soft drinks and espresso and cappuccino. Well, British Airways has joined forces with a world-renowned luxury health resort to create an award-winning spa cuisine for all the passengers in first class. The first class, in fact, is described. I try to peek behind that curtain sometimes, but here's the way they describe it. A haven. It's a haven. Where I fly, it is not a haven. It is a haven of calm, comfort, and refinement. You have personal space, they say, the space you need, they advertise, this space to escape and relax. In fact, it's all been inspired by British interior designer Kelly Hoppin. You'll find in first class the finest quality fabrics up there, materials to provide a modern and stylish feel all at once. Your own personal space can allow you to sleep, work, eat and relax. In fact, there's a visitor seat. If someone else in first class wants to come over and y'all need to work on business things, there's room enough for two of you in your space right there in first class. But it's not going to be the $1,200 ticket that I was priced. The same week, same day, same internet search, the six feet six inches cost you not $1,200, but $14,500 dollars. Well, I've just described you first class in which I have never ever flown. It's escaping and relaxing. Well, you may escape and relax in first class, but back there where I fly, you are caged and distressed. We have the same problem in Corinth. Some of the Christians are flying first class at the Lord's Supper, and some of them are flying in coach. And of all the places, the class divisions are being intensified at the one a time during the one event where the body is supposed to express harmony and unity like never before at the Lord's Supper. During the agape feast, they're having divisions during the Lord's Supper according to the class codes. Now turn back to chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He starts out chapter 11, verse 2, and says, I praise you because you have held on to the traditions that I have delivered to you. But now skip over there to verse 17. He's changed his tune. But in giving this instruction... I do not praise you. He begins the chapter by saying, because you have held on to the traditions, I praise you. But now the way you've treated the Lord's Supper, in this, I do not praise you, he says. In fact, he's quite upset with what they're doing. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, verse 17, because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, when Paul says, in part, I believe it, that's what we call 
Paul's sarcastic mode. He starts a book by telling them they have their divisions. He's saying tongue-in-cheek, I can't believe for a moment that your conduct is, is as outrageous as they say. You can't possibly be doing what has been reported to me that you're doing, can you? Well, I want to say three things this morning about the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First of all, the Lord's table must express the community's unity as a new covenant people of God. The Lord's table must express the community's unity as a new covenant people of God. The Lord's Supper expresses the unity of the church as the people of God. But that's not what's happening at Corinth. No, not at all. Now, Paul does a play on words. Look at verse 17. Five times he calls the Lord's Supper an event in which you come together. Five times he says, when you come together. Look there at verse 17. When you come together, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Look at verse 18. When you come together as a church, there's a division. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together. Look at verse 33. So, brethren, when you come together, and then verse 34, come together. There's no mistaking there. Five times Paul repeats this word that means to come together. It could mean to assemble together. It could mean to come together in unity. In this passage where they are not coming together and there is no unity, he says five times, when you come together, when you assemble together, when you gather together in unity and peace. Well, look at verse 20 through 22. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Are you, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I shall not praise you. Now, let's back up a moment and let me give you the setting. In the first century, the Lord's Supper was a full meal deal. It wasn't just a tiny cup and a, a morsel of bread. Oh, there was a time when the bread was broken and it represented the body. And there was a time when the cup was lifted and it represented the spilled blood of the Christ. But before all that, in, in the midst, there was a full meal, a time of eating, a, a full meal. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. Archaeological study of Rome, Roman houses showed that in the dining room of the well-to-do patrons, you could have about nine people, some maybe a little more, some a little less. So thinking house church now, don't think room like this. It was in a well-to-do house in the dining room, say nine to ten people would fit in the dining room, and then you would have an atrium outside, and you might be able to fit another 30 or 40 people there. And then out in the courtyard, you might even fit some more. So think about in each house church, maybe 50 people gathered, some in the inner sanctum dining room, some in the atrium, some outside in the courtyard, some having to stand, some being able to recline in the dining room, and thus it went. 
who could be sure that the Lord's Supper, the church probably met at the host home of some of the wealthier members of the church. And you can imagine that the host invited those who were most well-to-do into the dining room. In other words, the host and his special friends came into the little private dining room while the others made do out in the atrium or the courtyard, the freedmen and the slaves. They were stuck out, not allowed to be in the dining room. And at Corinth, just like the first-class passengers on the British Airways receive a five-course dinner, and those of us in the back of the plane receive a preheated TV dinner that tastes almost as bad as it smells. Not quite. You couldn't get there, but it tastes almost as bad as it smells. It wouldn't be unusual for those in the dining room to have much better food, while those on the outside had little or no food at all. We actually found a historical document by Pliny the Younger. At the very same time, Pliny describes an, an event, a social event, and it sounds like what's happening in Corinth. Well, he, he talks about a man about has an elegant economy in his hospitality. He's describing the behavior of Romans, and Cor Corinth is a Roman colony, so this sounds exactly like a parallel from the same time of what's happening in the church in Corinth. Here's what Pliny says about his Roman friend. The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few, and cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He even had his wine put it, broken down into three tiny flasks. Not with the idea of giving his guests a, a chance to pick which wine they wanted, but rather to make sure they couldn't refuse what they were given. Well, one vat of wine was for him and his best friends, and the other for, well, all of his friends were grated, writes Pliny. And there was just the almost vinegar for those who were outside the dining room. You see... What's happening here in Corinth at the Lord's Supper is the rich show up early while the working folk are still out in the field. And by the time the working folk come in, they've eaten all the food and they have become drunk even at the event of worship. They bring their own picnic baskets and they are eating well and drinking well to the point of being drunk. They are puffed up and they are satisfied and they provide no food for those in Corinth who are poor. Look what he says in verse 22. They have shamed those who have nothing. I can't praise you in this, Paul says. There was a church member who occasionally invited me to a Dallas Cowboys game in the old stadium. It was something I looked forward to very much. But even more than the game, I was looking forward to dining in the end zone five-star restaurant. When you arrive, you have to have the credentials to show your membership, and he had such. And our, our table will be right up against the window that overlooks the end zone there on the Dallas Stadium. You're up there with the big wigs. The last time I went years ago, Nate Newton was up there dining, and 
your, your party's name is engraved upon the menu, and you can choose. You can have shrimp, and it's, of course, served on ice sculptures, and there's the carving of prime rib. There's salads galore, chicken, beef, fish, you name it. They have it all you want, a pasta bar, and even the mashed potatoes are shaped through pastry bags and fleur-de-lis. Dessert table, my favorite, it's a die for. One year... I was sitting in the end zone private club facility looking out the glass in the end zone and there was an old fella in the cheap seats there way up high in the end zone eating a corn dog on a stick. And I thought if he knew behind this glass that I had four kinds of dessert on my plate and I've had three different kinds of meat, he wouldn't realize the difference between those behind the glass and those out there eating corn dogs on a stick. That's the way it was in Corinth. The fat cats were eating like they were at the Dallas football game end zone club, and the others were going away hungry. And in doing so, they had brought shame upon the poor. They had heightened class distinctions, which the Lord's Supper was intended to do the opposite. It was the covered dish that wasn't, because everybody ate their own food. Look at what he says in verse 21. For when you eat, each one consumes his own supper. They weren't willing to wait on anybody. The church's common meal, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, was to represent the covenant unity of the people of God, the very meal that represented the unity of the covenant people of God represent disunity and class distinctions. And worst of all, they had shamed the poor. If you know anything about the Old Testament and New Testament, you know that God is the God of the poor. You don't shame the poor. How do I know that? When John the Baptist asked the question, are, we, are, are you sure, are you the Christ, or should we look for somebody else? You know what Jesus says? You can tell John I am the Christ because the poor have the gospel preached to them. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is the God of the widow, and God is the God of the orphan, and God is the God of the alien, the stranger, the poor, and the outcast. And we, covenant people of God, are bound together by responsibilities to God, but also in Corinth and in Amarillo, our responsibilities to each other. Put bluntly, by showing contempt for the poor, for those who had nothing, they were acting as if the death of Jesus had not had changed the conditions of their relationships to each other. Now, you listen to that. By shaming the poor... At the unity bill, they were acting as if the death of Jesus had not transformed their relationships with each other as a unified people of God. In Christ Jesus, all of our relationships are changed. We value each other this morning not based upon our income statements, but rather based upon who we are in the story of Jesus. 
This disunity happening at the time to represent unity was a parody of the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, stop it, stop it. Open up your picnic baskets or eat at home and share your food with those who have nothing. It was years ago out here on our lawn at First Baptist Church, we were having a, a Labor Day Sunday evening picnic and Robbie Barrett, our minister of education, told us all to bring our own food. He said, you go by and pick up what you want. We would share desserts, but everybody, you could cook it, you could buy it, you could do whatever you want, but everybody kind of bring your own food, bring what you want, and eat what you want. It was a good idea, and that everybody could have exactly whatever they wanted, and well, we made sure to buy a big sack of food for those who might come by who didn't have anything. Sometimes when we're out eating, others in the community will gather, and we had things to share with those who didn't have anything. And the Laotians, who didn't completely follow the instructions, decided they wanted to share. And they brought just trays and trays of food, and they showed up with their own food, but they showed up with all of this food to share. Share your food, Paul says. There's a second thing. Not only is it to be the meal of unity, but the Lord's Supper focuses on the church's memory of the death of Jesus. The Lord's Supper focuses on the memory of the death of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or verse 25, about the cup. This is my blood, the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Or verse 26. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is about memory. Next month on Good Friday, we're going to gather in this room and have the Lord's Supper. And we're going to remember because we cannot, we shall not forget what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus' death was not an accident of a broken judicial system. That might be the top script, but underneath that script, it is the sacrificial death of the Son of God on our behalf. Remember, when you have the Lord's Supper, remember. If you're ever really going to know Jesus for who he was, if you're ever going to remember the cross for what was accomplished, you must understand Jesus through the act of crucifixion and resurrection. It is the Eucharistic story that tells his story. And so when we have the Lord's Supper, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, it's not a time to party and eat the best foods and become drunk, but rather it is a time to remember. Here's the third thing he says. The Lord's Supper is an occasion to ponder God's judgment. The Lord's Supper is even an occasion to ponder God's judgment. Look at verse 27. Remember, they're shaming the poor. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason among you some are weak and sick and a number sleep. So then, my brethren, verse 33, when you come together, wait for one another. Now, sometimes 
We use this passage of the Lord's Supper to ask us all to have a moment of introspection, a moment to examine our lives and our hearts, confess our sins to God, and that's not an inappropriate use of the passage. But in its true historical setting, the passage comes about God's judgment in the Lord's Supper, about the distinctions between the haves and the have-nots. He tells them, you've not discerned the body rightly. In other words, you've not realized that the body of Christ is unified by every measure regardless of socioeconomic standards. You see, by mistreating the members of the church in Corinth, they're repeating the sort of sin that made Christ's death necessary in the first place. By the way, they were shaming the poor in Corinth. During the moment they were remembering his broken body and his spilt blood, they were recommitting the very sin that made Christ's death necessary in the first place. And rather than finding grace at the Lord's table, those who were bringing disunity in the church, those who were shaming the poor, those who were shunning those who have not, some of them, there's no other report of anything in the New Testament like this, but it's here and you can't deny it. Some were falling sick and some were dying. It was a sign of God's displeasure and God's discipline for the way they were treating the poor. Look at verse 30. For this reason, given the fact that some of you need to repent for the way you're treating the poor, he's saying, you were weak and sick. No more covered dishes that aren't. Verse 33, wait on each other. We're uncomfortable with this passage. The idea of the Lord's Supper is a moment of judgment and we're uncomfortable with that because we're always uncomfortable with the notion of God's judgment. But at the same time, Paul is saying in Corinth, they have shamed the poor to the extent that God has taken notice and God is bringing discipline upon them for the way they're treating his people. This passage in Corinthians tells us a lot about what the church is supposed to be. Within these walls on this campus is the one place where there are no haves and no have-nots, for we all have the lordship of Christ in our life, and that's all that matters. If we don't judge each other by our W-2s, by our income statements, but rather we all have the Spirit of Christ. We're all indwelt. Together, the Spirit indwells us, and whatever walk of life, whatever, supposed to, whatever separates us socioeconomically, Together, the reality is we're all sinners. And we all need God's grace. And we all need a place at the table of forgiveness, the Lord's Supper. Paul had heard that they were using the Lord's Supper to invite the, the, the wealthiest into the inner dining room, and they were having the finest wines that they were getting drunk, and those labors of field they were showing up, and there were no, nothing, not even scraps left for them, and they were dishonoring the poor. And Paul says, it's hard to believe that you are turning the mill of God's grace into a moment of disunity by shaming, shaming the poor for whom I came to preach the gospel. It's hard for me to even believe that that church is doing something 
like that. I close with the words of our Lord's brother, the book of James, chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here, here's a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose, says the brother of Jesus, listen, says the brother of Jesus, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you in the assembly have dishonored the poor man. Paul was watching the treatment of the poor. James was watching the treatment of the poor. The one place on earth where the ground is absolutely level is at Calvary. Right there at the foot of Jesus where the blood drips down. There are no high seats. No low seats. There are no haves. No have-nots. Right there. If you put a level on the ground at Calvary, it'd be completely level. The bubble would be in the center. Because all men are sinners, equally so, who need the grace of God. Let us pray. Oh, God, we're reminded by the missteps of this Corinthian congregation of who we are not to be. But rather, God, all men, women, boys, and girls honored at 12th and Tyler because in Jesus, we're all just the same. Father, help us to remember that our unity transcends anything that would divide us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.